0: Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is Red Watch by RegulatorWatch.com. It's simply astonishing. New studies are showing that current smokers have a significantly lower risk of COVID-19 death than both never smokers and former smokers when you correct for other variables, including many of the health problems that smoking intensifies. The new science is in addition to several studies released early in the coronavirus pandemic, which showed a link between nicotine use and the prevention of COVID-19. What should vapers make of these startling new developments? Could the mantra, vaping saves lives, be extended to COVID-19? Could it be a delicious irony, smoking saves lives? Joining us today to talk about this is Clive Bates, renowned international tobacco control expert and master of the counterfactual. Clive is gonna walk us through the findings of the new studies and provide us his patented analysis of the potential impact on the bitter battle to ban the vape. Clive, thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, Brent, it's great to be back. Well, and it's great to see you. Now, first, I wanna jump into COVID. We're gonna get into teen vaping statistics. We're gonna talk about the WHO and all of the research with regards to nicotine and smoking and vaping and all that kind of stuff. But first, you're in the UK. Tell us what's going on with COVID there. Is the lockdown still in full effect? Yeah,
1: I've been from Nigeria and in the UK for a couple of weeks. Um, We're just at the moment in the process of uh, easing some of the lockdown uh, now and uh, moving away from a relatively strict uh, approach to a less strict uh, approach in the hope that this will uh, cause the economy to uh, start firing up again and, uh, you know, get us back to some sort of normal life. Of course, the risk is that um, it doesn't do that. Um, that what, what happens is that we get uh, a second surge in COVID cases. There's a panic response, the healthcare system's under stress and we go back. So nobody quite knows what is going to happen, but we've begun the process of lifting the restrictions.
0: Now, in terms of the you know, response uh, to the pandemic, it, obviously there's a lot of economic catastrophe that's already happened and more potentially to come. What's your thoughts on that in terms of it, the proportionality between that and, and the risk of the virus?
1: Well, I mean, the, the economic impact is just um, sort of unbelievably bad. Um, and actually, the, out, the outlook is pretty terrible as well. I don't think there'll be a, a, a quick rebound back to um, I don't think there'll be a quick rebound back to sort of normal economic life as it was before the pandemic took hold. Um, so we could be living with this for some time. Um, you know, and uh, any uh, health economist would would have to question whether the the cost in terms of uh, you know avoided loss of life, uh, or the you know the benefits in terms of avoided loss of life were you know, uh, proportionate to the overall economic damage. But what I think is driving this is not a cold-blooded calculation, you know, what is the economic optimum, uh, but a really strong sense that people don't want to see things like the healthcare system in total disarray. They, they you know, they're aware that people are at risk, but they don't want to see people dying... You know, in miserable conditions, in hospital car parks, in tents, on trolleys, and all the rest of it. So, what's really driving the policy is the stability of the healthcare system, um, and that actually uh, takes us into the takes us into the issue of um, what is it that could reduce the rate of hospitalisation. And you, you mentioned the studies in your in in your introduction. Um, The studies that we have are not suggesting that um, smoking or nicotine prevents you actually getting the disease in the first place, but more uh, that it prevents the disease being so serious that you end up needing to be hospitalised. And that actually means that if there was a protective effect, and there is a huge if about that, then it's playing uh, playing into the main issue with the disease is people ending up in hospital, uh, and then, you know, getting sick as a result of that.
0: So we've got a a bunch of uh, the research here posted up and stories about it. Why don't you walk us through from what you understand, Clive, in terms of what is the research? There's some stuff that was with regard to nicotine. There's some research out just about smoking. So what's your overall lay of the land there?
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say is that, you know, we've got, to, we've got to be clear. There are different points in the progression. So there's, first of all, um, actually getting the disease in the first place. Um, and the data on that is so terrible. Nobody really knows how many people have got it, what characteristics that they have. Um, there doesn't seem to be a protective effect from smoking or nicotine associated with getting the disease in the first place. Um and it may actually be a risk factor. Um, but then the question is, what happens with progression of the disease? Many people get the disease, they don't suffer severe symptoms, uh, they recover it's unpleasant, certainly, you know, no one really wants to have it, it's unpleasant, but it doesn't take them as far as hospitalization. And hospitalization is the key issue, because that's the thing that stresses the healthcare system. Um, and what the research has shown is that smokers are strikingly underrepresented in the numbers of people who wind up in hospital in the first place, okay? Um, And that is where it looks as though there is possibly, and I have to emphasize possibly, some kind of protective effect. that The worst of uh, of the symptoms to the point where you need hospitalization is something that nicotine or smoking protects against. Then, from there, once you're in hospitals, there's a range of serious things that can happen to you. For example, you go from a normal hospital bed, maybe with just being provided with oxygen, into an intensive care unit. And finally, if everything goes totally wrong, you end up dead. Um, once in hospital, there doesn't seem to be a protective effect from smoking or nicotine. In fact, The outlook, once you are hospitalized for smokers, and particularly former smokers, is worse, okay? So what you have is fewer fewer people and fewer smokers entering hospital in the first place, but once they do, their outlook is worse and they are more likely to go to intensive care and more likely to die. Uh, And one possible reason for that is that If nicotine has a protective effect, what happens when people uh, go into hospital is that they're made to quit smoking. Um, You know, you go into a respiratory ward, you have to stop smoking. And, you know, basically at that point, you may be with the hospital may be withdrawing something that has a protective effect and leaving you exposed to the underlying vulnerabilities that come with being a smoker, which is challenge to the cardiovascular system and other aspects of stress that smoking related disease causes so you have to think of maybe two effects in competition with each other the vulnerabilities caused by decades of exposure to smoke and then a possible and i stress possible protective effect from current exposure to nicotine now all of that would be, you know, could be dismissed as wishful thinking based on terrible data. And the, the data is very weak. But it's also backed up by a series of papers that stress biologically plausible mechanisms by which um, uh, nicotine could protect against the disease. And this is what I think is, is so interesting about it. Um, Essentially, the most serious effects of the disease are not caused directly by the virus, but by the virus triggering a uh, an immune system overreaction. So it's not the virus that kills you, but the immune system response to the virus going into a kind of overdrive, that uncontrolled overdrive known as a cytokine storm that kills you. And there is reasonably good evidence that nicotine can help to suppress uh, um, those cytokine immune system overreaction. Uh, And this has been going, you know, this is this sort of anti-inflammatory effect that nicotine has could be the reason why uh, nicotine protects against the more severe inflammatory uh, symptoms that you get as COVID-19 advances to its more serious stages.
0: So let me understand this correctly, you know, from the different parts of this, is that say you are afflicted with coronavirus and you've got COVID-19, you're in the hospital, could, could the suggestion be that actually if nicotine was administered, it could help?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, in, in a sense, in hospital, you're doing something very bold. You're basically taking someone who is using nicotine, if they're a smoker, and you're making them quit. You are, as a matter of policy, removing something that is plausibly, not certainly, but plausibly protective against the more severe symptoms of the disease. Right. So if you're going to make people quit smoking, and there's good reasons to do that. I'm not, I'm not calling for people to carry on smoking. For goodness sake, do that with nicotine replacement therapy or something like that that provides an alternative source of nicotine. Um, so that these people aren't just denied something that has been protecting them and masking the underlying vulnerabilities that they have arising from decades of smoke exposure.
0: So here's where we hit that very delicious irony, because for, I mean, my one question is, let's say this was this is all works and, and it's proven to work. I would imagine, though, that public health would insist that that nicotine would not be administered to anybody under 26 because, of course, you know, the brain damage from the nicotine would outweigh the saving of the life over COVID, right?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think, actually, um, that, that is likely to be a very rare uh, Um Nicotine replacement therapy in the UK... Uh, is indicated for use in uh, kids uh, you know from the age of 12 onwards um and and you know obviously the severe the, the number of the number of people under 30 with severe covid-19 symptoms is very low indeed True. it's really a disease of uh you know you know kind of uh, my age and over um so uh, and the i don't th- think that to be a material problem
0: sure sure and of course you know i'm being sarcastic as hell as much as i possibly could be for our audience we do have a bit of an audio issue with clive and we try to get that sorted out but it's just one of those things it's across the pond and it's skype so um just bear with and he has uh his young child there as he's yeah. doing some caring
1: if you're hearing any if you're hearing your seeing anything weird it's
0: uh, super so and clive if i if i ask you to repeat something it's because something important you said which everything you say is important but something that i may need you to repeat okay. um okay so i'm channeling right now the uh you know every vapor viewer that we have out there who's been watching this research come in and at the first part of it it, it was a bit startling like as i termed it because you know could this really be the case and and you're so used to seeing, you know, disinformation science coming out from the opposite side, and then when this stuff comes out, that seems too good to be true. You know, we advocate that you you can't just be skeptical of the science that goes against your position. You also need to be skeptical about the science that yeah. supports your position. And we definitely were uh, skeptical uh, into that end. And so let me kind of walk everybody through the kind of timeline here that we've got. And just uh, let me dip back to um, our links page. This page, everybody, is up live on RegWatch. It's uh, filed under 1992. That's where I file all of our show dates. But if you just search for 2020 show links, you'll find a list of them, and this is today's show links. When we do have them up, they're there, and um, everything we're talking about is here. So when it comes to the research, it's very interesting. So the negative news stories... Started coming out um, on March sixth, and that was with mm. our good friend Stanton Glantz. You know, mm. uh, reduce your risk of serious lung disease caused by coronavirus by quitting smoking and vaping. Mm. Thanks, Stanton. Uh, great advice. And then, yeah, you- I
1: mean that's half right. Um, look, I mean the 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 issue the issue is for pe for people who are, are smoking. Once you're in hospital and things are getting bad, then smoking is definitely not something you want to have done in the past. It does create underlying okay. vulnerabilities, and it is a risk factor. The, quest- the question is actually relates to nicotine, and you have to look at both of these things together. And that's where Glance is wrong uh, in saying you should give up vaping. You should not give up vaping if you're doing it, especially if you're doing it as an alternative to smoking. And what we should be doing at this time is encouraging smokers to quit in any way that they can that will have fairly rapid benefits for them in terms of the cardiovascular system, and if they do that by vaping or by nicotine replacement therapy, um, then they will have retained the protective effect of nicotine, if there is one. Um, if they carry on smoking, or if they, you know, if they try to give up vaping, they may be losing a nicotine protective effect. They may be going back to smoking. You've got you've got to distinguish here between the risks associated with smoke and the possible risks associated with nicotine. I don't think anyone is suggesting that nicotine itself is a risk factor for COVID-19, just that smoking is. And that is why we always say in all aspects of harm reduction, you have to separate the smoke from the nicotine and think about them differently. And in this case, that couldn't be more true. So the advice to vapors. Is basically carry on vaping. Uh, you, you know, you're not you're not compromised here. I mean, if you you know, if you want to give up, fine, but you know, don't sweat it, but certainly don't go back to smoking. Um, you want what you but what we most need to do is encourage smokers who are actually quite vulnerable, have these underlying vulnerables, to make a switch to not smoking. And if if that means that they should take up vaping. Because that works for them, then so be it. Uh, the idea that everyone could just, just quit completely after people have been, you know, dependent on nicotine and have been deeply entrenched in smoking and vaping for years or decades, it's just ridiculous. It's just not practical public health. What we have to do is give people practical, you know, actionable advice, not a kind of hypothetical. Well, wouldn't it be great if all nicotine disappeared off the Face of the planet and then we wouldn't have any of these problems because the problem is that we would and we would still have a large population with the residual underlying vulnerabilities arising from um smoking
0: and that i mean that is the case i I just love it when we talk about common sense and common ground and all that kind of stuff but certainly we both know and you certainly know that the anti-vaping lobby does not seem to find common ground at all they
1: they have been out in
0: force. I mean, it's re- it's really interesting watching this print, to
1: be honest. I mean, the question I would always put is I've been uh, to
0: have a cough? protective effect for five. Sorry, can I get you to start that yeah. again? We lost you at the question.
1: Okay, so the question I would put is, would they or would you or would anyone be glad or sad? if nicotine turned out to have a protective effect on COVID-19. Now, any sane person would be absolutely delighted. You know, it's a cheap, abundant, widely available, readily made, accessible uh, product. You can get NRT anywhere. You can get nicotine in non-combustible form anywhere. You know, game on. That That would make a material difference to the progress of the disease. But I can't help thinking, looking at some of the comments I've seen, that there are people in the tobacco control world who would think this was the worst news that would ever have, that something good would be found to be said. And this has been going on for years. I mean, I've, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a paper out uh, just a, a few days ago, and it was it was from the people who set up the doctor's study in 1951 OK, um, this is the this is the huge 65 year study of British doctors, and it found really beyond reasonable doubt that smoking was protected for Parkinson's disease. Wow. Now, Wow. You would think there would be huge news about this. I mean, Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is horrible. Nobody wants that. Um, yet it turns out to be protective. All the underlying science suggests that any protective mechanism is due to uh, nicotine, and also any protective mechanism would be similar to the kind of mechanisms that we're talking about for protection against COVID 19. Mm. So you would think, aha, you know, this is great news. Nobody wants to talk about this. It's always been portrayed as a tobacco industry kind of, you know, propaganda line or something, but the people doing this. These are the the descendants of Sir Richard Doll and Sir, uh, you know, Bradford Austin Hill. Um, um, You know, these are, uh, you know, these are the giants of the tobacco. um, Sorry, I meant Sir Austin. These (laughs) these are the giants of the uh, the tobacco control world, uh, of the original uh, epidemiologists who discovered the links between smoking and cancer. And they found a protective effect on smoking and Parkinson's. There are other, you know, there are other diseases where nicotine appears to have had um, a protective effect against severe respiratory conditions. For example, one form of Legionella disease, you know, it's biologically plausible, but people don't want to hear it or people in the tobacco control community don't want to hear it.
0: So what what is going on? I mean... What is going on here? Because that, I mean, if it's just ideology, right? I can they're just they're they're poisoned by ideology and they're not seeing it, or they're seeing it and there's some malevolence going on.
1: I I think it's just uh, adherence to almost a cult like uh, mentality about this. It's it's the war on drugs mindset. That, that has to find these substances uniquely evil and the people using them uniquely problematic. Um, it, it, it's, it's so weird. It brings about the most weird ethical, unethical behavior. I mean, to try to shoot down this whole lot of argumentation um, about, um, you, you know, the underrepresentation of smokers and the possible protective biological effects of nicotine on the uh, against these immune system overreactions, as some kind of tobacco industry conspiracy, is basically insane. It's weird, in fact. Yet that is what they are they are doing, and it, it's sort of you know it's reminiscent of this really extreme sort of fanaticism that cannot deal with the ambiguity and um, subtlety that, that 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 is there in real life it's a very extremist fanatical position
0: and it's true and it's and it's and it's singular around the smoking and nicotine issue i've got a, a quote of yours up here from a tweet you had tobacco control is a cult a creepy unworldly sect with an elaborate <laughs> belief system high priests and shamans sacred texts pathological hatreds child exploitation intolerance of dissent Nourished by billion dollar funding and concealed by the ornamentation of respectability. Clyde Baker.
1: Wow. <laughs> I was obviously in a bad
0: Well, you were in, a or, or potentially in a very uh, uh, eloquent mood. Now, um, you're, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do this. Now, if this question is out of bounds, just let me know because you don't need to answer this question. But okay. when we're looking at, um, Public health. Public health um, takes a lot of uh, control, right? I mean, it 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 assumes a lot of authority. Um, Sometimes, I mean, in most cases, the assumption of that authority has been granted to it by um, you know year after year, event after event, legislation after legislation, and so forth. It's not like public health is in the Constitution of the United States. It's not like it's. In, directly linked in, you know, in the charter in Canada and so forth. So they, they have an enormous amount of power over top mm-hmm. of the entire mechanisms of the legislature, of, of the economics, government, and of course, over individuals' liberty. And nowhere is there an accountability structure or anything like that. And so mm-hmm. when this thing rolls out, it's very difficult to not see it as being very totalitarian-like. And with regard to their position on things like nicotine, the the intransigence that they have, that also points to a totalism in the way that they think. So if their behavior is totalitarian in nature and their thinking has become total and so their approach to science is totalism, so it's become just one way of seeing science and it's that way or the highway, then that's fascism. And then as soon as you have fascism, you look and go, oh, wait a minute. The one key fascist, you know, government that we know about was insane about uh, hygiene, insane <laughs> over tobacco, insane over nicotine. So there is an, an exact, you know, corollary here to national socialism.
1: Um, I think you're letting governments off the hook there with that, Brent, to be honest. Um the you know you know these bodies are mostly publicly funded. Uh, they have um, chief executives and boards that are appointed by the public sector. Um, they're mostly accountable to parliaments uh, or Congress in the United States. Um, the issue is that they seem to be able to form political coalitions uh, to to get their way, and they seem to be able to do that by misusing and abusing public money for science to create stories and narratives that um, politicians feel very, you know, uh, um, but I I don't care about that. I think it's up to politicians um, to be more sceptical, to hold them to account, uh, to challenge them. You know, and I don't mean politicians doing this alone. I mean, governments have extensive... Networks of civil servants and so on who should be doing this, um, not, not to just be spoon-fed, um, sort of ideologically driven nonsense. Uh, I just don't think you know you can allow that to happen. I, I, I mean, in these totalitarian states, um, you know, and you, me- you mentioned National Socialism in Germany, um, that was the government. That was the government doing that. So to me, this is this is really about. Um, legislators, uh, the executive officials holding these agencies, people within them, to greater to greater account. And they've not been doing that very successfully.
0: Not very successfully at all. So on that point, uh, Clive, um, sorry, did you need a second there? You good? No, it's okay. Okay. So on that point, let's go straight then to the granddaddy of them all, because we're talking government, We've got you know, the extrajudicial uh, you know, global I don't even know what the heck to call it, but I mean, obviously we're talking about the World Health Organization here. And yeah. so let's step back now in our little bit of a, a fun in 2020. So before the pandemic w- was at all on the radar of the average citizen in the West, um, and had already been con- talked about a little bit, you know, on news and stuff like that, but not much. We're looking at, um, this is, sorry, curated on January 29th, but it was an actual January 20th, when uh, the WHO had released, this was their uh, e-cigarettes, oh, it is January 29th. I think it's updated on 29th, you know the story here, because you were part of one of the reasons why uh, you kicked back, so they they posted their statement on e-cigarettes on January 20th, and uh, there was quite a bit of pushback, on the 21st this was the who tweeted out this look at this this is on january 21st e-cigarettes how risky are they e-cigarettes i remember
1: this i mean i mean this is completely irresponsible um it's terrible i mean they Almost everything they said was 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 wrong, uh, factually incorrect, scientifically suspect, or a non sequitur. Um, they were uh, they made a huge fuss about the Ivali thing, you know, the lung injury episodes in the United States, which, you know, I think most informed observers knew was nothing to do with nicotine from last year onwards, yet it was appearing in WHO material uh, as if it was a material concern about electronic nicotine delivery systems and e-cigarettes. Whether that was deliberate um, you know, conflation of the EVALI THC vitamin E acetate story with nicotine vaping, or whether it was just mere incompetence and the, the, the sort of lags between uh, WHO understanding things and uh you know things you know new knowledge actually being created i don't know i suspect they were looking for whatever bad things that they could uh find and they were trying to throw whatever they could find plus the kitchen sink at nicotine vaping in this absurd uh tweet storm plus uh question and answer which they had to take down within a couple of days because it was even too ridiculous for them
0: and Which I mean, what would, what would motivate them? I mean, we had Chris Snowden on the show early April and he'd really, really, you know, lashed out at them because it was this a diversionary tactic, maybe, because this is right at the heart of the time. If you look mm-hmm. at the timeline, this is at the heart of the time when they should have been warning the world about the pandemic, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. And well, now, we're find, you know, now we're finding out that, it, you know, according to reporting out of Germany, um, from the top paper there, I'm not going to try to butcher the name, but, you know, the top daily Der Spiegel or whatever that is, just came out earlier in the week and and reported fully that China had asked the WHO to not label as it a pandemic, to not tell anybody. Oh. And so this is the same time here yeah. when the WHO is launching this is when they were cooling their heels on behalf of China's request.
1: Well, I, I'm, I haven't got the timetable to hand, but, but, but what I recall is the... Uh, Oh, hang on a second. Just hold a second. No problem. Hi, I'm back. Good to go. All right, good. Yeah, I, I mean, as, as, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this... this um, Q&A came out around the end of January, um, you know, 20th of January, and then 29th of January was the update. Um, and I think I think WHO first called the pandemic on the 31st of January from
0: I believe so that's correct,
1: yeah. Same time. Um, I, I think it's worth just understanding how these organizations work. Uh, There's a little team stuck in uh, WHO called the Tobacco Free Initiative It's tiny compared to WHO and compared uh, to the Convention Secretariat for the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is where most of the bad stuff comes from. These people will not have been involved in anything to do with um, the coronavirus pandemic um, as it was building up. That will have been a completely separate branch of, of WHO. Now... Uh, so i don't i don't think there's any linkage between the two i don't think it's diversionary i think it's just good old-fashioned useless incompetence happening in
0: parallel um the uh it's, the sorry it's just uh, out, clive clive just one second yeah. i'm astonished myself how many posts are here i'm like when is this going to stop i'm still scrolling from the top
1: yeah no it's 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 ludicrous i mean they've just they put their entire Q and A into a um, you know, in, into a, a tweet storm, you know, and it's hon- honestly just all of it was just rubbish. I mean, there wasn't really anything in it you could find that was actually factually based. I mean, I wrote to the guy who did this, who's responsible for it afterwards, and said, look, you know, obviously this is embarrassing for you. Um, Nick, would you like to do? Yeah, so I did this critique. Would, after you know, after after I did that, I said, look, it's obviously embarrassing and humiliation. Would you on the next round? Would you at least like to talk about it before you publish something? Um, you know, and that way, uh, at least you could get you know a, a, a contrary view. And if you're going to take if you're going to take uh, critical positions, you can at least go in with your. I didn't even get a you know I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't say what I was thinking that way, um, <laughs> but I did write to them politely asking to see if they would take a second view. But I just, that's why partly why I think it's a crazy cult. I just don't think, you know, not a normal, normally if, if somebody criticism that they've seen on my blog, um, they would, you know, they would say, okay, well maybe we ought to talk to you and maybe we ought to try and find a sensible way through this and at least get your opinion before we publish it again. But I don't think that's what they're interested in doing. They're not interested in telling the truth about vaping. They're interested in telling a story about vaping that is, you know, unalloyed hostility. And they're doing that because they're pursuing a war on drugs, cultish mindset about nicotine.
0: Yeah, and that's strange because, of course, that's at the same time that the total softening up on cannabis is happening everywhere in the West. But and then it's really public health that's done that softening. And so exactly. you know, and so that's what's mind-blowing. I always come down to it as say you will never trust a government that prefers their citizens to be stoned. And the problem is, is that nicotine actually makes you sharp and think and get stuff done. Pot, you know, makes you think, but you know, about getting the next bag of Doritos, you know, that's the thing, right?
1: But uh, but I I again I think, you know, I mean, people again, they sort of misunderstand WHO. I mean, WHO is managed by its members. There's the World Health Assembly and there's the Executive Board of the WHO, and those are the countries that are part of it. And a lot of the WHO's problems stem from two things, really, Inade- inadequate sort of direction from the, the governance structures of WHO, an inadequate challenge to the sort of stuff that they're doing on tobacco, um, and also inadequate... Funding. I mean, the numbers to hand, but it's sort of, uh, I think it's sort of in excess of 60, 70% of its money comes through so called voluntary contributions. And really, everybody is in on that. Um, little bits of funding from here, there, and everywhere could be pharmaceutical companies. There's lots of Bloomberg money swilling around in WHO and Bloomberg is, you know, a, a self-confessed prohibitionist when it comes to vaping. Unsurprisingly, um, WHO is dancing to that particular tune because, you know, he's the piper and, uh, you know, he's paying. So, so you know, they, you've got to get the funding sorted out. You've got to get the governance sorted out. But that's, that's the responsibility of the member states, the parties, the countries, uh, to do that, to be clear, what they want, not to put up with any nonsense that's coming out of them. Not a single member state can but Um, but they should have done. They should all have been incensed. Self-evidently rubbish. So WHO continues to do these things because it's unchallenged by its own governance structure, and then it's underfunded, so it's in hoc to all kinds of interests who aren't necessarily the interests of the member states and the wider public, as represented by the member states.
0: And that's a good point, Clive. And, and I've got up here right now, uh, as we're walking people through now, the timeline still again, here's March 24th. And so we had the end of January, they came out with it. There was a big, huge blast from from you folks and stuff. They had to backtrack a bit. And then COVID goes into full bloom and crisis. And then here we are in March 24th. This is after... The first little bit of uh, uh, French uh, studies had come out with regard to mm-hmm. nicotine and so and smoking and that those first studies were coming out saying, hey, just people that are coming in and, and and we know that there's not as many smokers and that kind of, this is all strange. And so here the WHO came out on the 24th and and wanted to make some things clear. Are smokers and tobacco users at higher risk of COVID-19? And, and I'll just take you off the shot here so you can have them. There you go. And so... So smokers, excuse me, smokers are likely to be more vulnerable to COVID-19 as the act of smoking means that fingers and possibly contaminated cigarettes are in contact with lips, which increases the possibility of transmission of virus from hand to mouth. Smokers may also already have lung disease or reduced lung capacity, which would greatly increase risk of serious illness. Um, it just seems silly to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, what they're doing, what they're doing there is they're saying things that seem plausible. You know, um, you you can imagine somebody, oh, I can see how that works, or you know, you can imagine that smoke carries virus particles, or vaping carries virus particles, therefore increases transmission. So all of these things sound reasonable. There's no evidence really to draw on. They're just saying those things because they might and you'll find that all of that language is qualified by mights and maybes and potentially's and, and, and so on. And those things are all right. You know, they are potentially things they are, they are realistic things. Um, But what they're not doing is picking up on the things that work against that um, hostile narrative. And what they want to do is have a hostile narrative and that's governing what they say about this it's not really making them think about what is the public health optimum thing to call for, you know. And as I say, I think that is to, um, you know, try to uh, encourage people to stop smoking. But can you, you know, hell will freeze over before WHO says something like that. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna have I'm going to get you. You're going to have to, to
0: restate re- that last little bit before hell freezes over because we lost you there. So if you could just pick that up for me, Clive.
1: Okay. I I think. You know, I I think the right advice is that people should give up smoking, um, you know, with respect to COVID-19 to reduce their underlying vulnerabilities and improve their long-term outlook. But they should maintain use of nicotine, uh, at least least until we know um, in greater detail what effect nicotine is having, protective or otherwise. with respect to COVID-19. That would be, in my view, that's a proper implementation of the precautionary principle, which is, you know, that you, you when you don't know whether something is, um, uh, you know, when, when you don't know whether there's a protective effect or not, what you do is you make an assumption and then consider what the consequence being wrong would be. So I assume there's no protective effect, and there is, and I advise people to quit smoking i potentially put them in a, a life-threatening position or uh, quit nicotine they're in a life threatening position if um, i advise people to continue using nicotine but there's no protective effect, what have i done somebody's used a nicotine patch big deal people do that all the time it's not the end of the world so the consequences are very asymmetric when it comes to being wrong about making assumptions under conditions of ins- uncertainty and that's how a policymaker should think about this is always when things are uncertain to ask the question okay i'll make an assumption but what if i'm wrong what are the consequences of that and that would incline you to use nicotine on a precautionary basis in these situations
0: yeah i mean and you're, what you're describing is is of course you know doing a comparative analysis of alternatives And so there's multiple alternatives to actions that can be taken and, and compare and contrast, look at intended and unintended consequences, and then make an informed decision based on that. And then, you know, and track, you know, tack, tack as you go and change as you go. But that's not the case here. When, when you're consumed by ideological thinking, you are actually prevented from doing comparative analysis of, of potential alternatives. You just don't see the other alternative.
1: They, I think they, this is knowledge they would rather not have, some of them. I mean, you know, don't, don't want to paint with an excessively broad brush because there's a lot of public health people who do oh, sure. want to see this. You know, I mean, it's, but there is an entrenched tobacco control community who, for whom this would be terrible news, uh, however absurd and unethical that is. You know, nicotine saves thousands of lives through protective effects on COVID-19. How could that be bad news? But for some people, it would be.
0: Oh, my God, it's, it's terrifying. So um, we're doing good for time, and we're going to be switching over to uh, the other topics that I want to get to as we bring it into uh, the teen vaping and stuff. But we have an important close to do on this. So let me just jump us over, back over to our little hosting page here. And so mm-hmm. what we've got uh, labeled here is, you know, COVID vaping nicotine positive. So, you know, these are the studies that have come out in some of the news articles, and here's Clive's. Mm -hmm. You know, plausible hypothesis that nicotine is protective against more severe COVID-19 symptoms. So you can get that here. And again, the French scientists, why are smokers being hospitalized less often than coronavirus? That was, you know, a very good piece, you know, in April. Then we have in May here, as May starts to come up, we start getting hit with some really big, big information that made me go, wait a minute. This research clearly is starting to show that this is more than just you know wishful thinking. May 1st, smokers seem less likely than non-smokers to fall ill with COVID-19, where their smoke, the cigarettes and COVID story is going harder to ignore. This was two days ago. And this was the National Post in Canada, our national newspaper, and it got syndicated out to, uh, and I'm going hand this to you in a sec here, this got syndicated out uh, to the Guardian and everything else through the wire. Mm-hmm. So this was a major, major, major piece. This is what we said, wait a minute. We're looking at for smokers who do better in any health measure taken from mm-hmm. any sample in any situation is astonishing. Mm-hmm. But now we have two studies showing that smokers do better with COVID. Um, Clive, this was the National Health Service Electronic Health Records uh, study, mm-hmm. 17 million people. Fill us in on this research mm-hmm. How how important is this?
1: It is quite important, but I think I think the um, the conclusions of that there's been a lot of discussion about you know how reliable those are. You know what happens if you adjust for? age, so On. I think that is it's consistent again. The, the, the position is subtle. OK, it's protective. Um, it seems to be protective, or smokers seem to be underrepresented when it comes to hospitalisation. But once hospitalised, smoking is a risk factor. In other words, the outlooks are worse, partly because, possibly, partly because people are required to quit smoking. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think that study adds, but it doesn't add particularly strongly to what we already have. Uh, we already have, uh, have seen.
0: Okay fair enough and then based on that then that's excellent to know timing wise um let me just find this here sorry that's my fault here so then timing wise who on the very same day so two days ago came out uh, with a statement, of course, which they would, you would assume they would have to make. So WHO statement, tobacco use and COVID-19. Tobacco kills more than 8 million people globally every year. More than 7 million of these deaths are from direct tobacco use, and around 1.2 million are due to non-smokers being exposed to secondhand smoke. Key thing here, Let me let me go through this. Tobacco smoking is a known risk factor for many respiratory infections and increases the severity of respiratory diseases. A review of studies by public health experts convened by WHO on the 29th of April, which we've talked about, found that smokers are more likely to develop severe disease with COVID-19 compared Mm. to non-smokers. So that's a develop. I guess that's what you're saying, right? COVID-19-
1: Yeah, some of these statements that they are made are right, but misleading. Yeah, once once you're in hospital, you know, there does there does seem to be an elevated risk that you're going to go on um, and suffer more severe, uh, you know, more severe symptoms and possibly die. Um, that doesn't ask, answer the question. And you know, there's been a range of studies that that show that is that uh, you know, once in hospital, smokers have a worse outlook. Um, the issue the issue is whether fewer smokers actually end up in hospital because of these protective effects. Uh, and, of course, the moment you get in hospital, you are required to quit smoking. You know, no one's allowed to smoke on a respiratory ward. So if you were getting a protective effect from nicotine that was masking some of the underlying vulnerabilities, then boom, that's gone. Uh, and you're back to having the underlying vulnerabilities. Now, that, 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 is a, that is a more subtle narrative about this than WHO has con- conveyed in this um, in this communication. And you know, in, some, in some ways, I can see their point because this protective effect is not established. Um, you know, it's not clear whether the data really supports it, whether there are other explanations for the data, whether this is really a thing. So I think in that communication, they said there is insufficient evidence or something of that sort. There's not enough evidence to show a protective effect. That again is a true statement but potentially misleading because it, it, it's not as if there's no evidence it's just that the evidence is not so strong that it's conclusive true so therefore we can't say we can't say beyond reasonable doubt there is a, a protective effect
0: so let me but add so they
1: they're navigating a path through the uncertainties in a way that creates a hostile narrative about smoking
0: and vaping uh, yes then they
1: are letting on
0: yes <laughs> we're just i know when we're losing your audio you don't <laughs> so if you're see so if you're going oh Uh-oh. but that's okay We you know, we get what we get it, it's been f- fine for the most part but it you know just the way skype works it always happens like right when you're saying the best thing those damn Uh-oh. you know okay let me bring up this this is in the statement though so let me find mm-hmm. the right part here Okay, so they say smoking impairs lung function, making it harder for the body to fight off coronaviruses and other diseases. Tobacco is also a major risk factor for non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease, cancer, respiratory disease, and diabetes, which put people with these conditions at higher risk for developing severe illness when affected by COVID-19. Available research suggests that smokers are at a higher risk of developing severe disease and death. Okay, fair enough. Who is constantly evaluating new research? including research that examines the link between tobacco use, nicotine use and COVID-19. WHO urges researchers, scientists and the media to be cautious about amplifying unproven claims that tobacco or nicotine could reduce the risk of COVID-19. Now, if they would only say that about every other piece of research that's, that's out there and, what they're, what they're, and they said there is currently insufficient information to confirm any link between tobacco or nicotine and the prevention of uh, or treatment of COVID-19 so here's the deal they are saying they're saying that absolutely unequivocally that vaping is more dangerous than smoking that's their position that's WHO's position and almost the position of most of the public health organizations except for say you know ones that they say vaping
1: is more dangerous than smoking well yeah
0: well one of their one of their slides did on January 21st well, they asked the question, is vaping more dangerous than smoking? <laughs> okay, they
1: didn't say that
0: in those things. So you just cut a, a out the, tot- they
1: did in the, Philippines.
0: the totality of WHO's narrative is one, as you said, is hostile to vaping. Part of the hostile mm-hmm. to vaping narrative is that vaping is as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking. I mean, that's the, yeah. the end-all, be-all of what's happened from all of the propaganda. It's
1: ridiculous.
0: Yeah, um, and so, so they know that. So, so, so here they're presented from valid researchers doing great research, and they're saying, hey, there's something happening here that we think that we can put our name on it that should be looked at, that we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. What does who say? Who says that's snake oil? Mm-hmm. Research on COVID and nicotine is snake oil and admonishes mm-hmm. the researchers, the scientists, and the media for at Ooh. all even carrying the story. So where does that leave you, WHO? Well, because you're not recommending vaping, so stay smoking, stay smoking, or like mm. it, it really is, it really well, is treachery.
1: Uh, I mean, those are those are the probably unintended consequences of having that kind of narrative. Um, you don't get you don't get people who um, could quit smoking. They don't quit because they've been scared off the alternatives that would work for them. Um, you know, and that's the that's the trouble with all the public health anti-vaping narrative. You terrify people about vaping, they carry on smoking. It shouldn't be that difficult to understand, but it seems to be. Um, and if, you, if you've worked yourself up into such a state of anguish about vaping and, and nicotine that you think it's just as bad, well, why should you care if nobody, if people carry on smoking and don't switch to vaping, if you think it's just as bad? So... They talk themselves into an absurd, anti-scientific, unethical corner, uh, in in my view, by by saying these sort of things. I mean, I thought that there's certainly said true things, but in a misleading way. Um, it's true that there's insufficient evidence to establish a, a you know protective effect, but that doesn't mean you should, there's no evidence, or that you should ignore it, or that you should dismiss. Dismiss it all as a tobacco industry scam or some sort of unscrupulous play. I mean, the people who are behind this are top-notch researchers who really understand what they're talking about. Of um, and it's very important. If there was a protective effect, it would be an amazing, major breakthrough. Um, totally. And you know, just being, you know, excited and motivated to look into that is entirely reasonable part of the scientific process. You know, and the idea that people only do things because they're manipulated by the tobacco industry is just ridiculous. It's like it's like from, you know, some sort of toy town campaigning organization.
0: And uh, I'm just waiting for your audio to catch up to you. We just lost you. Uh, So Clive, let me just jump us over now to uh, a topic change. And here's an article we have curated to RegWatch Higher nicotine content in Canada compared with UK is blamed for rising use. So new research reveals vaping among Canadian youth has risen dramatically over the past two years. And experts say it shows no sign of slowing down unless stricter regulations are put in place immediately. A survey of more than twelve hundred, sorry, 12,000 Canadians aged 16 to 19, done in three groups between 2017 and 2019, found that the number of those who reported vaping in the previous month had more than doubled to 17.8% from 8.4% in 2017. And the results mm-hmm. were published in JAMA. And this is our great friend, Dr. David Hammond's yeah. work. So what what can you tell us about that?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, we, we did this research. I mean, uh, the, the question the question I mean I don't doubt the specific statistics that he that, that he's quoted I mean he's a, he's a high quality researcher very well regarded and um, you know knows what he's doing the, the question is whether they've got the analytical framing of this correct and um, you know I've said this before I think on your on your program you you need to you need to look at these youth vaping epidemic figures in a particular way first first of all you need to work out who is a frequent user and who is an infrequent user the infrequent users basically you should not be worried too much about that that's just kids messing around blowing big clouds at parties being silly being kids it's not something that you should be losing sleep over in the grand scheme of you know risk behaviors it's it's far from the worst thing that a teenager could be doing very far from then then you should look at the more frequent users um, and you should be analyzing how many of them were prior tobacco users or prior smokers because, or, you know, in a different world, they would have been smokers with, you know, if, if there was no vaping available. And again, what you see is a different picture to the one that comes out in the dominant narrative. What you find is, is that the frequent users, the people who are using it daily or more often... Um, Are the ones who would otherwise, who were smokers, or would otherwise have been smokers. So for them, it's potentially beneficial. Um, And then you should, you know, then you should be kind of looking closely at what's happening with smoking behaviour. You can't, you can't have a discussion about youth vaping without coupling it to a discussion about youth smoking. And what we found in the in the Canada data is that Canada is doing well reducing smoking. And yeah, I think, lost like, you there. Clyde, uh, uh, sorry is- to
0: interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. I do need you to start that again. In Canada, we found.
1: Well, in Canada, we found that Canada was doing very well on reducing youth smoking. So both Canada and the U.S. have had dramatic declines in youth smoking, we have a lower level of youth vaping in uh, the UK, but relatively speaking, the smoking rates are higher. So which is the best situation, okay? It's better to have lower youth smoking rates. And again, we have, to, we have to come round to the, get back to the idea that we have to judge this alongside all the other risks that young people take. Smoking is one, drugs are one, violence, sex, uh, drink driving, binge drinking, Fighting all of the all of these things pose risks to young people far far more serious than a vape. And you know, again, there's been a big industry has been generated to create hysteria and a moral panic around nicotine use that really isn't warranted by the risks it causes. We set up the whole tobacco control world, the whole anti-smoking world, because we're worried about cancer, heart disease, and respiratory illness. Those worries are, if they're there at all, are greatly diminished when it comes to vaping. So we need a sense of perspective here. Most people are infrequent users and their use is frivolous, doesn't really matter. The more frequent users are likely to be or have been smokers and potentially that's beneficial for them. And then overall, vaping just isn't that bad. So yeah, it's not a problem. It's not something you necessarily want kids doing, But for goodness sake, let's not
0: lose our minds over it. Well, and that's that is fantastic advice. I've got this very so we're obviously the whole concept of of the fact that there was this epidemic and and that teens, you know, are vaping in large numbers. However, that manifests itself, the fact the fact is is that the reality uh, is the narrative in so many cases. And what we know about the media and the way things work is that is that the reality. It, the reality is filtered to fit a vision. And the vision is one in which that nicotine's bad, vaping's bad, teens are addicted, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Two things, one, esoterically, and then we're gonna jump into the, the discussion uh, in terms of Canada and the nicotine cap. But mm-hmm. this is a side one. We have just had now two months, two and a half months, and it could be more, right? Where all of these teens have been locked into their house with their parents and god only knows that par- parental responsibility the lack of it uh, was probably one of the reasons why there were so many of these kids who were vaping so did do do we have a problem in canada in the u.s where there's millions of kids jonesing out on their nicotine withdrawal their brains are shivering and they're coughing and flu and shivering you know because it's as bad as heroin like i'm just wondering would would not the would not the realities of a teen epidemic of of nicotine addiction be either showing itself so drastically that there'd be news stories on it? Why are there no news stories from the mainstream media talking about these kids that are curled up on their on their beds, unable to do anything because they're jonesing and they're not getting their nicotine as their parents are hovering over the bed, keeping jewels away from them? Oh wait a minute, it's not really a problem. You I know. get.
1: That that's the answer. You know, um I I mean it isn't the problem that people think it is. Um, you know, there are very few teenage vapors that show, I mean, I'm going, going off American, not Canadian data now, but it's more or less the same sort of thing. There are very few teenage, teen vapors that show signs other than those who were already dependent on cigarette smoking. So if you were seeing this, you'd be seeing withdrawal symptoms, not from mostly it just wouldn't bother them. If you if you're using something once every few days, you're not going to go into some, you know, kind of crazy uh, withdrawal symptom. Um, you know, it's, you're not going to be like an extra in the French connection. It's going to be <laughs> it's, it's going to be nothing. It's going to be it's going to be annoying because you basically want to hang out with your friends and kind of mess around with vapes. It's not going to be a big physiological challenge. Possibly, if you're addicted to smoking, uh, and/or you're, you know, you're, you've become addicted to vaping because you're already a somewhat dependent on vaping, to use the better terminology, then yeah, maybe you've got a few problems that you have to deal with by being in the in in the house. But that, that would be the same. If a I, I honestly, I honestly think there's just a missing sense of perspective about this. Um, You know, imagine if we treated alcohol this way. I mean, again, I don't know what the numbers were in in Hammond's study uh, or whether he reported them, but, you know, about 30% of uh, kids are drinking alcohol uh, in the U.S. uh, every month. Do we we go into some massive meltdown about that? Of course we don't. Where we should do is if they're heavy users, they're getting in cars, they're driving into lampposts. They're getting into fights. They're becoming vulnerable to sexual attack or whatever. You know, that's a real problem. Uh, let's talk about the real problems that, aff- young, that afflict young people. Let's talk about the mental health problems. Let's talk about bullying. Let's talk about violence in schools. Uh, let's talk about the opioid crisis. For goodness sake, you know, that's claiming, um, you know, thousands in a really nasty. And we seem to have a vast wall of money chasing something uh, that is essentially, relatively speaking, a non-problem.
0: Well, and we and 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 now on top of everything, we really should be talking about how we've completely spent all of the money for the children that they're ever going to have. So, every every child that we got living, every grandchild, and everything else is going to be saddled with the trillions of dollars of debt from coronavirus. I mean, it's really they're the ones that are going to be impacted. So maybe we should be talking well, I mean
1: about that. The- You know, coronavirus, you know, uh, the economics of it, you know, amount to a gigantic intergenerational transfer. I mean, that's true. Um, You know, essentially we're taking, you know, the younger people are taking a gigantic economic hit, um, both in terms of debt and lost opportunity, broken businesses and so on, um, in order uh, to protect what is essentially a vulnerable, largely older. population. Right, decision you make in society, but it doesn't stop it being big intergenerational transfer.
0: It's still inter- intergenerational transfer. So one last topic, and then we'll wrap. And so this is still on uh, the nicotine and teens, because in Canada, um, so the Canadian Vaping Association, in you know representing you know, obviously the open system segment of the vaping market here in Canada, and been doing it well for many years. We obviously are, are close with the CVA, and 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 they've been supporters of ours in the past. Um, So is Vita and others, too, as well. We don't really pick sides when it comes to uh, the vaping organizations. We're happy to cover. But this particular issue, though, is one that we've pushed back on because it's this. They made a decision, and I can understand what the decision was, is that in the height of this regulatory madness and hysteria over teen vaping late last spring, which was an opportunity to borrow from the UK TPD model of the 20 milligram cap, which at the time though wasn't salts, that was for you know the organic, which is the, you know, the standard regular e-juice. So there's some difference between you know, uh, the, the, millig- uh, the nicotine cap uh, when it comes to the two different kinds of e-liquids. Nevertheless, they made um, a call that it was the thing to offer uh, Health Canada, uh, which would demonstrate that the industry was serious about solving the teen vaping issue and believe that it actually would really solve it. Yeah. And so here we are now a year later and all those regulations are, are not done yet. The, the controversy is still there because of course the body part orgs, cancer and all, you know, all those guys are still pushing. They have enormous control uh, and power and influence. And so um, the, once the Hammond's research came out, the Canadian Vaping Association, as you know, um, posted out a tweet and some press release material and stuff saying, hey, look, the CDA has called for the federal government to limit nicotine concentrations to 20 milligrams per milliliter. The rise in youth vaping rates in Canada directly correlates to the entrance of big tobacco vape brands such as Jewel. And as you know, this particular time, because this is not new uh, in terms of the Canadian scene, really unlocked quite a bit of um, unease uh, amongst yeah. folks out there and including you had some comments on it so what do you think of this clive and, and what's your well, what's your take on it
1: look i think it's a terrible idea um you know i, I mean i understand trying to do it and there's there's of think they're trying to sort of negotiate but the, the the history of these things is if you if you start making concessions Especially concessions that aren't really based on anything. Um, there's no real evidence that says that the main reason why there's an increase in youth use is due to um high in- in- type products. Just that isn't you know, an established thing. That's and there's to, to the extent that there's science about it, it's more to do with the environment of and you know, interest and curiosity being generated into the into these products. Um, you know, we also know that people get the nicotine they want from a device, they don't, they don't get the nicotine that the device gives them. Uh, I also think these sort of ideas predate the design of things like Juul, which, although it has high strength nicotine, it uses very low volumes of liquid because what it's trying to do is deliver a certain quantity of nicotine in a low volume of nicotine because, in a low volume of liquid because it has a small battery. And it has a small battery because it's trying to create a compact size. Small battery can't heat up large volumes of liquid, can't exert a lot of rapid power and get a rapid temperature increase Unless the volumes are are low. So the high nicotine is integral to the design. It doesn't mean that smokers are getting more nicotine. It means they're getting nicotine from a smaller volume of liquid. Um, And then the salts have been used to mask some of the harshness And change the way that the nicotine is delivered via the lung. So there's a winning formula built into these products. And I, I, you know, I accept that's uncomfortable for some of the vape shop uh, and the, you know, the the vape manufacturers, but Juul has been spectacularly successful with adults. We keep having to come back to this. It's been massively successful with adults because it's got a kind of secret sauce. It has similar nicotine delivery to a cigarette, but it's in a compact form and it's convenient and easy to use. You know, you don't need a degree in engineering to figure out, you know, what to do with coils and wicks and you know atomizers and all that sort of stuff. It's very much a play type. So the vaping aficionados don't, you know, that's not their thing, that's fine. They don't have to be into that. But if you're trying to get the mass market you know, millions of cigarette smokers to make the first move into vaping, then the very first product you try has to be easy to use, look okay, and deliver something equivalent to a cigarette. And That is what these products have been able to do. And they create an entry into the vaping market, which creates a feed of people who are interested in vaping. And if they really take, if they really develop their interest, they'll end up in the vape shops, talking to the owners, using these much more sophisticated products using a wider range of flavors and so on. But if you don't get the vapors, if you don't get the smokes to convert in the first place, then you're not gonna get such a large population of vapors that we all hope we'll get. And I'm very much in the camp. If these products are successful with smokes by the million in the United States and elsewhere, then what on earth is a vaping association doing trying to ban them? You know, what, what happened to the primacy of the consumer? What happened to helping people get the products that work for them, not just the products that, you know, they sell or they think are best? You know, and I know these things, these comments will make me unpopular, but I'm very much in the camp that says, you know, you've got to try everything. You've got to have everything available. It's not There's not one right way to stop smoking. So if it's, you know, a product like, Heated tobacco products, smokeless tobacco products, Snus, these new white nicotine products like Zinn or whatever, or On. Fine, if that's what people want to use, fair play to them, use it. But we shouldn't be having people on the tobacco harm reduction vaping public health side saying no. The right way is this way. Use these particular types of, you know, mods or whatever. Uh, use the products that we're making because that's the only way to do it. Got to have a much more pluralistic view of the way this entire broad category is going to compete with cigarettes and ultimately obsolete that category.
0: And it all comes down to, in my mind, uh, you know, destigmatizing nicotine. And, and the missed call here was years ago not fighting for recreational nicotine as a thing. If the narrative had been recreational nicotine. Then there would be some battle to fight on. But it's never been fought on that in that manner. So it's
1: one of the reasons, to be on, this is a sort of trade secret I'm going to let out now, Brent. I don't really like the term tobacco harm reduction um, because it's it, it, built into it is a kind of premise that everyone's smoking and we need to reduce harm. To Whereas I would start almost from the bottom up and say, do we accept that nicotine is a legitimate legal um, lifestyle drug in the same category as alcohol, caffeine, and a few other substances um, that is widely available in societies? Not it's relatively innocuous, doesn't cause you know, lots of sort of distress, violence, uh, you know, um, family breakdown or anything like that. If we think that nicotine is and will remain a legal recreational drug in society, then the question is how best to provide it in a way that is safe. And that's sort of like harm reduction, but it's different in a way. Because you know, you'll know you find that some of the people involved in harm reduction talk about um, e-cigarettes as a kind of necessary evil to do away with the harms associated with we'll get on to the serious payment of nicotine. I don't see it that way. I see nicotine as a legitimate uh, lifestyle drug that is likely to remain legal for the foreseeable sh- future, should remain legal, and the challenge is how do you provide it to consumers in a way that they can enjoy it uh, without getting the horrors of cancer and heart disease and so on, or at least a level of risk that is commensurate with the risk appetite that we generally have for consumption and risky activities in society
0: and and you and i uh see eye to eye we've we've mentioned that uh on this show a lot even more recently uh when it comes to tobacco harm reduction so i agree with you just give me one second here and just to remind everybody that we do absolutely need your support from the industry whether you're a viewer vape shop worker somebody works in e-juice company or an e-juice company it would be awesome if you uh, went over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That is our support microsite at support.regulatorwatch.com. And give us a hand. Obviously, we promote fact-based science. We counter, misperc- counter misperceptions on vaping. Destigmatized nicotine is critical. And, of course, we hold researchers, regulators, and reporters to account. Very simple form. You can do a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly. If you've got U.S. dollars, they go a long way in Canada That would be fantastic if you could get a chance to toss a few dollars our way. We have also brought on some producing help. Mr. Producer um, is listening in right now, and you've seen that there's been a dramatic increase in our content, and we're going to be pushing more and more out, hopefully uh, to have an impact somehow on the election debate. So, Clive, my last question for you here is this. Is, okay, this is out of the blue. Vaping saves lives. You know, that's the harm reduction predicate, there is built into that, right? Vaping saves lives. You know, we have to, we have to, you know, reduce the harm. I find that lockdowns save lives and vaping saves lives are incompatible positions because one is about making sure individuals have liberty and uh, in order for them to make the choices about what to do with their body. And then the other one is completely opposite that where the government has said, you don't have the right to do with, with your body. You don't have the right to put your body near somebody else's body. You don't have the right to take your body out of your house. You don't have a, you, you can't even be, you know, within a certain distance of other bodies. I mean, it's just a complete total, uh, a destruction of body control. So for me, I don't see how those, those issues could be compatible. Tough question, throwing it at you.
1: Well, uh- i do actually think those things are totally different um it's the difference between a communicable and a non-communicable disease risk um you know the um you know you with the coronavirus an infectious disease your your behavior imposes risks on others um with something like vaping you know your your behaviour doesn't really impose risks on anybody, but it uh, essentially allows you to mitigate your own risks associated with smoking or taking nicotine. So that that's the big difference to me. And you know, if you go back to um, you know John Stuart Mill and the, the sort of harm principle, um, then you know you start to control the behaviour of uh, other people. You know, the state intervenes to control the behaviour of people. When one person imposes a risk on another, and that unfortunately is a characteristic of, um, you know, communicable diseases or infectious diseases, not not something to do with, uh, you know, smoking. It's much like leaving aside passive smoking, perhaps. So I think they are qualitatively different, and the, the measures that you can justify. You know, and there are people that would say, well, you know, if you really want to do public health, it's where, you know, it's particularly global public health at the the sort of WHO level. It's where you need an international, where where you have potentially um, international coordination and collaboration failure. You need an agency to control the way these risks are transmitted from one person to another, from one group to another, uh, across borders and so on. Uh, and that's very different to something like, you know, smoking or or vaping. Um, you know, you don't you don't close airports in or, in order to reduce smoking risk. You know, you don't uh, um, you don't lock in their house to reduce smoking risk. But there is an argument. We've seen the effects lockdowns have been effective in bringing down. Uh, the infection and transmission rates associated with the infectious disease, they do work, um, but no such equivalent makes any sense when it comes to vaping. So I would see them as completely different things in that respect. Um, well, so- it doesn't mean that bad decisions can't be made in both cases, but I don't think you can draw policy by analogy between the two.
0: So considering what, the argument you just made you know, for, say, a global agency to deal with you know pandemics and epidemics and so forth, Shouldn't they be dealing with that and letting this thing about smoking, you know, go away? I mean, maybe it's the smoking that should be taken out of WHO's hands.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a good argument for that. You you know, if you were to strip, if you were to do, you know, let's do a zero-based review on WHO and look at what it has to do, then you would start with things like pandemics, control of infectious disease outbreaks, um, and so on. And then on top of that, I mean, the the concept of the FCTC was the idea that governments needed to work together to overcome the the kind of lobbying uh, muscle and money of the tobacco industry. That The tobacco industry was just too powerful, and therefore you needed an entity at international level to normalise what good policy would look like, you know, banning tobacco advertising. Um, you know, uh, putting warnings on PACs and so on. So the original concept of it was to try to normalise good policy. And, you know, that's quite a common thing amongst um, international institutions to do that. You know, it's what the World Bank and the IMF spend quite a lot of their time doing, for example. So it's not a completely legitimate thing, but it would be more of a luck or infectious disease readiness but that's what the origin of the fctc was and if they were doing that uh i wouldn't have so much so much kind of concern about it actually generalizing good policy not a bad idea but what they're doing is generalizing really bad policy um and that is a problem
0: well clive i mean we've really for one thing i don't want to tempt the skype fate anymore so you know we've We've gotten through most of the interview and I know we'll hear some stuff from our viewers going, some great bites were lost, but every, you know, vast majority of what you said came through. So I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. And uh, I mean, be safe out there. I never say the safe thing. I, I like to say like, you know, keep up the fight, I think is the better one.
1: We're all right
0: here. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Clive. Just hang tight right there for one second. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. And, of course, for all of our supporters out there, and you can see on our page who supports RegWatch, please spend some of your dollars, some of those uh, government dollars that the that they're giving you, go spend that at our on at our supporters because not, that really helps. And, uh, obviously, you'll be happy that you did it. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.